morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everybody listening and watching wherever and whenever this podcast finds you. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Bitcoin Weekly Wrap-Up for January the 10th, 2009. This week's wrap-up is once again brought to you by eToro. This is a very cool, a very neat, a very interesting trading platform where you can not only trade traditional assets, but crypto assets as well, including Bitcoin and many others. And if you're new, they offer a bunch of really, you know, great tools for you guys to use, such as a virtual trading portfolio where you can trade fake money uh, on real order books and test out your strategies. You can also use something called copy trading. This means you can find experienced and very good traders, um, ones who have earned a good reputation, and you can look at their their stats and things that they post and charts and stuff like that. Um, they're so basically, it's a social media platform of a mil, eleven million other traders, and you you can go, you can do your research, you can follow people, find experienced traders who know what they're doing, and then you could copy their trades. You can allocate a certain percentage of your portfolio, whether you want it to be one twenty or whatever percent, and you can copy trade as many you know experienced traders that you would like as long you know as it doesn't exceed 100% obviously and whenever they make a trade you make that exact same trade with that percentage of your portfolio that you allocated so if you're an advanced user you can also by building a reputation for yourself on eToro you can also get people to copy your trades and then you earn a little bit off the top and you basically expand your portfolio. So it's very, very cool. Uh, I haven't heard anything bad ever about eToro at all, which is why I decided to, when they approached me to become a sponsor, I went and I did my research. I asked around because I never used them uh, prior to them contacting me. One of the reasons they contacted me is because they were going to start offering services in the United States. So I didn't have any prior experience. So I started asking around. I started looking at their history and I couldn't really find anything that had any you know level of concern or anything like that. They've been around before Bitcoin. So they're not some fly by night uh, exchange that just started either. So head on over to didyouknowcrypto.com slash eToro. That's didyouknowcrypto.com slash E-T-O-R-O. And that link or that'll redirect you to my affiliate link and what that does is it lets them know that you came from me which makes them happy and makes me happy but you will you will actually get fifty dollars once you do a minimum deposit which i think is around two hundred dollars so everybody wins in this scenario whether you're a new trader an experienced trader and you especially win if you sign up through my affiliate link and get that fifty free dollars so welcome again to the beautiful basement by the Bay Studios, joined as always by my 1995 Batman Forever, or it's a McDonald's Batman Forever uh, Riddler mug. So I don't know, probably can't really see that. And I got water again. Um, I actually kind of ripped, partially dislocated my shoulder, so I can still use it, but uh, try to use it as little as possible. Let this thing healed up. So I'm going lefty with the cup today. And today we're going to be covering stories about the Bitcoin price pump, uh, about how the IMF doesn't think that Bitcoin is ready uh, for prime time. And Russia is going to be opening a Bitcoin mine, as well as IBM uses the blockchain to basically prove nothing about your coffee. So let's look at the price and uh, a little bit of a story around the price. So since last week's roundup, Bitcoin's price has jumped 
to over a thousand dollars uh uh to a high of around 8300 and then it fell to uh again to about well let's actually look right now it's currently sitting at 7809 it's about uh 840 p.m central time on the 9th of january 2020 and so this price pump and everything like that uh, many people have claimed that this was due to the heightened Iranian U.S. tensions, um, and you know that w- that's been going on since the embassy protests and the assassination of the IRGC Quds Force Commander General Qasem Soleimani. And you know, this is—I have to say—it is highly correlated in regards to the uh, the assassination of Soleimani. And I've heard Soleimani and Soleimani, so apologize if i if i flip back and forth but then again you know i'm not uh i'm i'm not advertising this podcast as a foreign policy pundit uh the you know the first story about this assassination was breaking on reuters at about 9 p.m eastern standard time on the second and bitcoin's price jumped from 69.72 at 11 p.m two hours later uh so 9 p.m the assassination was reported Two hours later, it was still sitting at 69.72. And then between uh, two hours, the next two hours, between 11 and 1, it jumped up to 7,200. This has been claimed to show that Bitcoin is becoming a safe haven. So when we say a safe haven asset, what we mean is something like gold. Uh, in There's also volatility indexes and things like that as well, or uh, things uh, that have a tendency to write out issues uh, so let's just stick with gold just for uh just for ease of ease of explanation gold is basically the pun intended gold standard of safe haven assets when people are worried about uh tumult in the world whether it's war and rumors of wars things like that they have a tendency to go to something like gold money leaves the stock market uh, it either goes into bank accounts or wherever that money is held or goes into something that will either remain stable or gain in value because more people are fleeing to that safe haven asset. As we saw in the 2008 financial crisis, as we see during um, uncertainties, especially in the markets, people will flee into gold for a period of time because then at least the value is going to stay stable or actually rise in value uh, a certain amount, sometimes quite a bit. And gold has traditionally been that uh, safe haven asset. So what people are saying is Bitcoin is becoming a safe haven asset is that people are treating it like gold and that when there's turmoil in uh, traditional markets and around the world, that people are going to start instead of just going to gold, that they will start to choose to go to Bitcoin. So they're trying to correlate this jump uh, up to 7,200 by 1 p.m., uh, about four hours, uh, or I should say four hours, uh, yeah, four hours after the assassination that it was uh, had to do with that and that it was becoming a safe haven asset, or at least enough people did to fill order books and bump up the price. So this may very well be true, as it is difficult to discount this correlation, However, you know. However, we saw during the time frame of the embassy protest, the siege, um, and the attack on on the gates of the uh, of the embassy, which we saw ratcheting tensions between 
uh, Iran and the United States as they accused Iran of being behind it. Um, we saw a dump from $7,400 on the 29th of December to $6,900 uh, on January 2nd. So we actually saw a $500 dump during the period that these tensions were ratcheting up and the assassination hit. Four hours later, Bitcoin's price pumps. I, I, I mean, it, it is correlated, but in, in traditional markets, when something happens, it, it, it goes really quick. People dumping into safe haven assets. The price of gold will go up very quickly, and it did during this period of time. So it is, I should say, it's it's pretty correlated. It's uh, I, I can't discount it. But it's it's not, and Bitcoin is twenty four seven. This is not like aftermarket trading and things like that. Bitcoin's markets are twenty four seven. So we, we you know we have this correlation of people leaving Bitcoin while tensions are getting ramped up uh, because of the embassy protests and attack and thing like that. But then we also see a correlation of people pumping Bitcoin hours after tensions ratchet up even higher because of the assassination. I do think there are absolutely people trading Bitcoin based on the belief uh, by some or many, I don't really know because I can't know the minds of every single person that's trading Bitcoin, but it's at least by some. Uh, so I, I do think that some of those people to many of those people are trading ba basing their idea that it does correlate with a, a, uh, being a safe haven. And so they're trading based on that. So they're buying on the rumor of tensions, like the Soleimani assassination, and others are following on and, you know, bumping the price up. And then they dumped on the news that followed in the days ahead, i.e. there wasn't really going to be a war. There was some missiles shot. And then Trump seemed to the uh, intimate that he was basically satisfied with everything that had gone on and he wasn't going to be looking to up the ante. So the question is, if enough traders believe it's a safe haven and then the price follows, does it actually make it a safe haven? It kind of does. So, I mean, to a very small extent, it's obviously does not have the buy-in for the vast majority of people, but at least for a portion of the market of people who buy Bitcoin, it seems to be starting to do that. Um, I think that it is a, a bit disingenuous and a bit uh, blustery to for people to be pronouncing that the world is recognizing bitcoin as a safe haven it's absolutely not by the world saying some of the seven billion people like when you say the world i i think that that's just overstating it quite a bit there are some people who have the ability to access exchanges who buy bitcoin and sell bitcoin who are starting to believe that it is that I think is about the most that you can actually bring um, from this and some past correlations uh, that, that did kind of point to that as well. Uh, the next story is going to be about an op-ed in the Financial Times by Gita Gopinath, the IMF's chief economist, where she wrote that Bitcoin and other digital currencies aren't ready to challenge the dollar's role in global trade. She also went on to say that Bitcoin does not address the fundamental issues necessary to actually be a global reserve currency in the way that the U.S. dollar is, and to a uh, lesser extent, you know, things like the euro, uh, things like the yuan, really less the yuan, but but uh, somewhat to an extent, uh, the euro alongside the U.S. dollar, um, and. 
so she was saying that it doesn't have this, but the dollar's status, specifically as a reserve currency, is, I quote, the uh, bolstered by the institutions, rule of law, and credible investor protections that the U.S. is seen as providing, unquote. I think you'll notice those very specific words in that statement. And I would venture to guess that these were specifically chosen. Someone does not become chief economist of the IMF by just kind of uh, shooting from the hip. Speeches like this are pre-written out and they are looked over by, I'm sure, uh, uh, public affairs people within the IMF and, and uh, these people at, at this sort of level uh, doing big speeches will have somebody assisting with them and making sure that it aligns with IMF goals and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, first off, though, in that statement, she uses the words, quote, is seen as providing, is seen as providing. Referring to what the dollar has that Bitcoin does not. She does not say it does provide. She says is seen as providing. And this like I said, could have been badly worded and not caught, or she could have uh, just been, you know, had, had bullet points or, or just missaid the word or whatever, uh, or could have been a Freudian slip. But she isn't wrong, um, though. So the U.S. does seem to provide. U, U, uh, central banks do seem to provide things like institutions. The central bank is the institution. Uh, a rule of law and credible investor protection by what they mean is that they have the ability to use force to uh, uh, coerce, you know, uh, financial actors to abide by what they call credible investor protections. And the rule of law, they have the ability to globally enforce that people abide by the laws that they state for the basically the sphere of influence that they believe that they have uh, control over. Um, so she isn't wrong in that. Uh, you know, people in the markets, the global financial markets, uh, currently do trust the institutions that back the dollar as this, you know, global reserve currency. And while this current, you know, fiat financial system is historically very, very new, the world has been moving at a faster and faster and faster and faster pace. You know, if you look at 100 years ago um, from 1920 to 1950, I mean, that was a massively fast pace. You saw Model Ts go up to the point where, you know, the majority of people in America had a car. Um, we were, uh, we had already split the atom. We had uh, air travel available for um, um, people, you know, and that, that was, that was a fairly quick time. Um, and then, uh, you know, fairly quick advancements. And then as we've gone on, the technological, technological advancements have been getting faster and, and faster. So at this pace that we've been experiencing for the last couple generations, um, and as it continues to, uh, you know, to do that, the, the idea of how long something, you know, needs to exist to become a tradition or a public institution, you know, really kind of, you know, the, the timeline necessary really kind of shrinks. If you think about it now, every single 
major government institution. Every single major corporation has a Facebook page, right? Uh, of course, you know, the, the, the thing of it is, is if they wanted to be on top of it, they would have been doing this in like 2003, 2004, 2005. But they didn't. Most of them, it, you know, it was within the last decade that they really kind of started to do this where the gains that they would have made from having public presences on these social media sites, uh, they, they kind of really missed out. Um, they got in after it was already kind of uncool to do so. Um, and, you know, so this sort of thing is like, it just goes to show that they are, uh, it, it, this we do not need a very long timeline to, for things to become kind of almost as it's always kind of been there, really. It's, you know, basically whatever happened since you could remember as a child to now is kind of how things have always been. And, you know, uh, this fiat system has already cemented itself. So it, it is very hard for people to move beyond that. Um, but, you know, as we've seen is that things move very slowly and they move all at once. And I think that's what you're going to see with digital currencies. And I, I don't mean to say that, um, you know, Bitcoin's just one among many equals. I do not believe that at all. I think that pre Bitcoin is the preeminent one, but I think that you are going to see it rise alongside things like um, central bank and, and other privately issued uh, digital currencies, but they will not be able to keep on top of the innovations because they are saddled by regulatory and bureaucratic burdens. So, but all that being said about trusted institutions, trust is a very fickle thing. And, you know, that mistress is is very quick to leave. As quick as she arrives, she can be as quick to leave. And the public can lose trust very quickly. Um, in related central uh, bank news, Christine Lagarde, the uh, president, I believe she was the former head of the IMF. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the IMF. And she's now the president of the European Central Bank, the ECB. Basically, she, in a speech, doubled down on her position that the ECB wants to be intimately involved with the development and regulation of, of cryptocurrencies. Um, she also said that the ECB should continue to work on researching the use and implementation um, of, the, of a central bank digital currency. Now, basically, what's caught on in this space is they're calling them uh, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. What was also very interesting is that while she wants Europe to be ahead of the curve and, and she was in, you know, what she was saying was that she wants the ECB, not central banks, but the ECB in particular to be the head of the, ahead of the curve compared to other central banks, specifically the Chinese, uh, the PBOC, uh, the Fed, uh, you know, and then, you know, all the other ones, but those are the main ones that she'd really, uh, is thinking of in competition with. Um, but she also said that she does not want to stand in the way of private market led solutions for paraphrasing, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me, let me restate that is that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, so this is not a direct quote, but she doesn't want to stand in the way of private market led solutions for fast uh, you know, in more efficient retail payments in Europe. And this was also interesting because this hints at the ECB being more open to Libra or something like it, but perhaps not specifically to Bitcoin because she was not talking about, um, 
you know, store of value or anything like that. Something that kind of specifically, specifically uh, is, is counter to the idea of a central bank and more of something that's just focusing on being an integrated app uh, into, you know, various internet websites and global commerce. So I, I don't know how much you want to read into that, but I, I did think it was interesting in the specific words that, the, that she used, very similar to uh, uh, Mrs. Gopinath of the IMF as well. So, um, if you'll remember, uh, last month, I think this was probably about four to six weeks ago, I talked about the um, Russian uh, Rosatom State Atomic Energy Corporation building a um, uh, mining farm. Or, wait, no, I was talking about... No, I was talking about the a Russian aluminum plant. So, never mind, sorry, I'll get back to that. Uh, last month, the Russian State uh, Atomic Energy Corporation, Rosatom, they built uh, a mining farm near a nuclear power plant in Udomia, or Udamla, Udamlia in the Russian Federation. And this was like uh, the uh, Rusal aluminum plant in Russia that I talked about four to six weeks ago there. I got, I got the new story and the old story mixed up there. So four to six weeks ago, I talked about how Rusal was opening up. Basically, they had uh, uh, unused sections of their aluminum smelting plant, and they have power generation there. So they were basically kind of creating a space that, you know, Bitcoin miners or data centers could open up and rent the space. Um, now you actually see a state, uh, a state agency, a state corporation or a state-funded corporation or state-owned, however you want to say it, opening up a mining farm slash data center by their nuclear power plant. And this is going to be a 30 megawatt uh, power plant, which is roughly about the same size as the one Bitmain is building in Texas. So this is also, you know, like this is big news because this is the first government related company in Russia uh, to offer services specifically to Bitcoin miners. And they, along with this, announced plans to basically scale up to a 240 megawatt facility in the future. And this is great because as state agencies begin to, or states begin to recognize the need to have at least some sort of a bit of their pinky dipping into, uh, into Bitcoin mining because they don't want to be left behind. Like they are hedging their bets that if Bitcoin does become something very important in the future, they don't want China to be the biggest player. They are starting to dip their toes into the waters and see if it's warm or not. Uh, next, IBM is lauding their new Thank My Farmer app that uses blockchain technology to allow consumers to track their coffee to its sources. Uh, many people are concerned with where their coffee comes from and promoting sustainable practices. This is, you know, kind of basically an example of good initiative, bad judgment. While, you know, it is very neat that consumers can actually trace their coffee and make actual, you can, through this little QR code, you can see where it comes from. You could actually make additional payments to the farmers if you want to. You want to go, this is great coffee. I want to continue to support this guy. I'm going to send him an extra five bucks or a hundred bucks, whatever you want to do. You could do that. 
But as I've talked about many times, I don't have a problem with what they're trying to do. I think it's very neat. But I've talked about many times that using a blockchain doesn't mean that it's more useful or more efficient or better in any way than the previous ways that they did any of this stuff. Um, this is because this is just another centralized permission system. They're not building a permissionless proof of work system that's validated by nodes run by anybody who wants to across you know, the world. Why wouldn't they do that? Because it'd make no sense to do that for something like this. Um, because they, it, it, it's, it's absolutely useless. You could do this with a very, not very simple, but you could do this without blockchain on a regular app that's monitored by their own centralized servers already. Like they could use an SQL database, much like OneCoin did. Um, so, you know, it, it, this is just a regular, um, this is just like, you know, in what they had before. Uh, in the past, it's it, like a regular non-blockchain app. You're trusting, like whether this was non-blockchain or blockchain, right? All that's different is you're just using this word in there because you're still trusting that the information you're getting correct. That's the real farmer. That this is where your coffee came from. The blockchain is not telling you, oh yeah, I was there. All it's saying is at such and such time. Somebody on uh, the permission centralized IBM blockchain indicated that this coffee came from this point and such and such time it said that it reached this port and at such and such time it says it got reported to Fairtrade RS coffee and when it was delivered there at such and such time it was bottled and stamped with this QR code. It wasn't there. I can't show you a, a live walkthrough. All it's doing is saying hey, uh, somebody told us this was true. So you're still at the end trusting IBM or trusting this coffee company that what they're telling you is true. They could have just as easily just printed a QR code into an SQL database and called it a day. Um, you know, Bitcoin, you know, to contrast this, Bitcoin works because you don't have to trust the network. You don't have to trust the miners. You don't have to trust Satoshi Incorporated, you know, you know, there's no Satoshi Incorporated to trust that's running Bitcoin. It's run by all of us. You don't have to trust anybody that the information you are getting is correct. That the payment that you are, sorry, my shoulder hurts there a little bit. You don't have to trust that the payment that, that you, that someone has sent, said that they sent you uh, and that you're receiving is legitimate. You could verify, verify it yourself in a trustless system. And, you know, the final story is a happy one. And, you know, like I, I've been saying for a lot of these wrap-ups, I keep on having just such sad stories. Oh, wait, before I go into the final story, now we have one small tidbit for the Kleiman uh, 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 Craig Wright case. I just saw this morning there was a new document on the legal docket, basically, that you can track anything, uh, anything that's submitted to the court that the court enters into the record, um, whether it's motions or it is depositions and all that stuff. Some of the stuff you actually have to pay for. Most of it is you can access for free. But a new, uh, or, um, basically a new legal document. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know all the, uh, the legalese of what type of documents these are. But basically, Kleiman, uh, Ira Kleiman's legal team uh, let the 
judge know that about 486 pages of information was turned over from Craig Wright over to the case. And part of this was this brand new, the third now Tulip Trust document. But Craig had marked it as confidential and did not want it to be made public. Why? It, okay, and the Ira, Ira Kleiman's team has basically said that we don't think it should be, but you know he has the right to request redactions and they will allow, or that they won't stand in the way of him making his case to the judge on what should be redacted and that kind of stuff. So we don't know what it contains. We don't know what it says. But it's very strange to me that you're making, uh, that you're defending yourself in a case where someone is trying to claim that they own a portion of the Bitcoins held in a trust and that you just now have turned over a third document that shows more information about this trust, that you're doing this now like a year and a half later. But color me surprised that Craig pulled some brand new mysterious thing that he will claim proves his claim and he's going to redact or try to redact the parts that will make the parts that are unredacted look more juicy so he can continue this charade for a little bit longer. So I will let you guys know once I find out what this thing is. Uh, so now on to the final story of the day. And like I said, it's a happy one. Bitcoin has reached uh, record highs uh, this last week for hash rate. And this is possibly in anticipation of the happening price increase or the pump that occurred possibly correlated with Iran tensions over this last week. And we have climbed from about 40 exahashes, that's about 40 million terahashes, to over 100 exahashes over, I think, about the last five to six months, six, five to six months, I believe. And that, I mean, that's, that's over a hundred percent increase. Uh, it's about a, what, 120% increase. Um, so that's very, very cool. And this seems to show that you know, either speculators who are getting into mining and or the current players are expecting a price increase in the near future and want to push uh, this investment into the space to, you know, prior, not, you know, not a year ago, but now uh, five months out from a reward having, which is effectively cutting the profits in half by around 50%, you know, give or take a few Satoshis of, of transaction fees. So, Overall, I think this is a, a very good sign for everybody. And uh, that's it. That's all that I have for you today. Please, you know, contact me. Uh, give me stories that you would like to have covered or guests that you think I should have or just reach out and say hi. Uh, let me know what you like or don't like about the podcast. That, that is very helpful to me. Um, thank you for listening this week. Thank you for watching. Please subscribe. Uh, if you are on YouTube, go down there. Um, that's not pain. I that's a, a, got my finger stepped on so that's actually a blood blister underneath my nail uh go and subscribe on youtube uh click the little bell icon so that you're notified every time that i upload please go to itunes as well leave a five star and a written review it helps very very much um if you would like to help go to supportmypodcast.com. shows all the way to support but it also has some very cool discounts that are absolutely free they're absolutely free to every listener and, and, and watcher on YouTube and anybody else that wants to uh, support what I do. Uh, this is absolutely free. So if you want to give donations, you can. 
if you want to shop through Amazon, you can. But if you also uh, want to grab some free discounts on things like Onnit Supplements, Mushroom Coffee, Bitcoin Tax Software, Tax Season's coming up, folks, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. So feel free to go over to supportmypodcast.com and give uh, some love to my sponsors at eToro. So go to didyouknowcrypto.com slash eToro to go through my affiliate link and get 50 bucks for free. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening and have a good night.